There's an old joke. Um, two elderly women are at a Catskill Mountain resort, <clears throat> and one of them says, boy, the food at this place is really terrible. The other one says, yeah, I know, and such small portions. Well, that's essentially how I feel about life, full of loneliness and misery and suffering and unhappiness, and it's all over much too quickly. The, the other important joke for me is one that's uh, usually attributed to Groucho Marx, but I think it appears originally in Freud's wit and its relation to the unconscious. And it goes like this, I'm paraphrasing. Um, I would never want to belong to any club that would have someone like me for a member. Woody Allen is without doubt one of America's greatest filmmakers ever. In terms of output alone, none of his contemporaries come close to him. Sidney Lumet managed 43 films before he died aged 86. Allen has made 44 and he's only 78. You have to go back to the height of Hollywood's studio system to find a director who amassed more films than Allen. During the 1930s, John Ford often managed to knock off two or three pictures a year. Michael Curtiz, four to five. But back then, directors did not write their own scripts. Allen has written or co-written all of his movies and they're all original screenplays, no adaptations. And while several great directors also worked from their own scripts, Joseph Mankiewicz, Preston Sturges, Billy Wilder, none of them, but none of them, have come anywhere near Alan's productivity or longevity. Hi. 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 Oh, hi. Hi. <laughs> well, bye. <laughs> You, you play very well. Oh, yeah? So do you. Oh, God, what a, what a dumb thing to say, right? I mean, you say it, you play well, and then right away, I have to say you play well. Oh, oh, God, Annie. Well, oh, well. <laughs> la-di-da, la-di-da, la-la, yeah. Annie Hall is such a landmark picture that you can divide American romantic comedies into two eras, before and after 1977. Until then, all romantic comedies charted the one course. From Charlie Chaplin and Harold Lloyd, through to such classics as It Happened One Night, Bringing Up Baby, Ninochka, The Philadelphia Story, The Lady Eve, and so on, to Some Like It Hot and The Apartment, it was always boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy wins girl back, and happy there ever after. What Woody Allen did was take a template that had worked perfectly well ever since Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. There, the bard had Hermia in love with Lysander, but her father had betrothed her to Demetrius. Then somehow, Shakespeare was able to work the whole thing out so that by the end, the young lovers wound up together. And for centuries, that formula worked. Shakespeare presented a pair of lovers whose affections for one another are thwarted by parental pressure. In other words, external forces prevent them from getting together. And it was because of their backgrounds, social, ethnic or religious, that lovers themselves added to their own obstacles and thus delayed their own union. I say delayed because eventually they found the strength of character to stand apart from the prejudices of their families, friends and communities and strike out on their own. He was not marksman enough to hit a moving target at that range. But <clears throat> if there was a second assassin, 
It, that's it. We've been through this. It, they, they recovered through the shells from that rifle. Okay. All right. Then what are you saying now? That everybody uh, on the Warren Commission is in on this conspiracy, right? Well, why not? Yeah, Earl Warren. Hey, honey, I don't know Earl Warren. Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon, jo Lyndon Johnson is a politician. You know the ethics those guys have. It's like a, a notch underneath child molester. Then everybody's in on the conspiracy. The FBI and the CIA and J. Edgar Hoover and oil companies and the Pentagon and the men's room attendant at the White House. No, I, I would leave out the men's room attendant. You're using this conspiracy theory as an excuse to avoid sex with me. Oh, my God. She's right. Why did I turn off Alison Fortunick? She was, she was beautiful, she was willing, she was real, intelligent. Is it the old Groucho Marx joke that, that I'm, I just don't want to belong to any club that would have someone like me for a member? Alan took that entire template that had worked for over 350 years and simply chucked it out the window. What Woody Allen did was internalize those forces so that it was the characters themselves who were the cause of their own situation. In the case of Annie, brilliantly portrayed by Diane Keaton in an Oscar-winning performance, she changes from a woman who is somewhat unsure of her abilities, who suffers from undernourished self-esteem and becomes a more fully realized character, more self-aware, happier, more capable and free. By contrast, Alvi doesn't change at all because of his, well, what is Alvi's problem? The answer lies in the original title Woody Allen wanted for the movie, Anhedonia which is the Greek word for the inability to express joy. All he can do is resign himself to the absurdity of his own condition. I, I'm going to buy you these books, I think, because I, I think you should read them, you know, instead of that cat book. That's, uh, that's pretty serious stuff there. Yeah, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with, uh, with death, I think. It's a big, big yeah. subject with me, yeah. yeah. I have a very pessimistic view of life. You should know this about me if we're going to go out. You know, I, I feel that life is, is divided up into the horrible and the miserable. Those mm -hmm. are the two categories, you know? The, uh, the horrible would be like, um, I don't know, terminal cases, you know, and blind people, yeah. and cripples. Yeah. I don't know how they get through life. It's amazing to me. You know, and the miserable is everyone else. That's, that's, so, so when you go through life, you should be thankful that you're miserable because that's, you're very lucky to, to be miserable. Instead of following the traditional trajectory of bringing the lovers together, Annie Hall slowly and ever so tenderly pulls them apart. In other words, it's not romantic at all. And yet, while not tragic either, it is very sad because the movie is about loss. And so, while precious few Hollywood rom-coms end in a breakup, almost all of Hollywood rom-coms since Annie Hall have been redesigned so that the engines run on neurosis. He's been depressed. All of a sudden, he can't do anything. Why are you depressed, Alvy? Tell Dr. Flicker. It's something he read. Something he read, huh? The universe is expanding. The universe is expanding? Well, the universe is everything. And if it's expanding, someday it will break apart and that will be the end of everything. What is that your business? He stopped doing his homework. In terms of form, Annie Hall is by far Woody Allen's most complex and articulate. For starters, it's not chronological. 
it's not even told in flashback. Flashback implies opening at the end before going back to an earlier event to explain how he got there. The film is essentially a monologue. Or, since Alvy Singer is a comedian, the film really is a stand-up routine where Alvy uses his time with the microphone as a public therapy session. And, like all stand-up routines, its non-linear structure is almost stream-of-consciousness in form. It jumps back and forth, left and right, as Alvy attempts to make sense of the slow yet steady decline of his romance with Annie. And then, into that non-linear form, Alan throws in a whole host of stylistic devices that puts his film right up there with the likes of Citizen Kane, Wild Strawberries, Breathless, Eight and a Half and Goodfellas. At various points, the script slips the movie into memory mode. But the memories are not treated in the conventional way. What Alan and his writing partner Marshall Brickman did was to hold up the past for re-examination. For instance, at one point you have Annie telling Alvy of her old boyfriends. Not content to have Annie simply tell us, she shows us. And then modern Annie and Alvy step into the past so that they see young Annie with her boyfriends, all in the same frame. Then at another time, Alan and Brickman go one better. Treating us to Alvy's own memories, they place him in a classroom when he was a young boy. But instead of just observing the events, grown-up Alvy begins to argue with his school teacher from the past. Yeah, he kissed me, he kissed me. Yeah. That's the second time this month. Step up here. What did I do? Step up here. What did I do? You should be ashamed of yourself. Why? I was just expressing a healthy sexual curiosity. Six-year-old boys don't have girls on their minds. I did. At another point, Alan splits the screen so that with the enormous help of master cinematographer Gordon Willis, we are able to instantly compare and contrast the two separate sessions Alvy and Annie have with their therapists. That day in Brooklyn was the last day I remember really having a good no, we time. We never have any laughs anymore is the I've, problem. I've been moody and dissatisfied. How often do you sleep together? Do you have sex often? Hardly ever, maybe three times a week. Constantly, I'd say three times a week. Then later, Alan and Willis and editor Ralph Rosenblum go one better, where they not only compare and contrast the respective dinners of Easter and Passover, of the Hall and Singer families. They have the two families talk to one another across the split screen. How do you plan to spend the holidays, Mrs. Singer? We fast. Fast? No, no food. No, it's on for us, sins. What sins? I don't understand. Tell you the truth, neither do we. But remember, the Passover dinner for the Singers happens in the past, while the Hall's dinner is more contemporary. So what the film does is have them talk across time and space. That is not to mention, of course, Alan's decision to frequently break the fourth wall and have Alvy directly address the audience. So did you do those photographs in there or what? Yeah, yeah, I sort of dabble around, you know. And as if that were not enough, you have the exquisite balcony scene where Alvy and Annie talk about photography. A podcast such as this cannot possibly do justice to the scene for the simple reason I cannot show you what is on screen. 
While Alvi and Annie talk, Alan puts up subtitles to give us Alvi's and Annie's own internal thoughts. What Alan achieves here is to tell us one thing and show us something else. It is a rare treat indeed that a filmmaker is so articulate, that the storytelling technique is so complex, that they have to split the two basic elements of sight and sound in order to tell their story. But here's the rub. The entire film was almost a complete disaster. The script, as originally written by Alan and Brickman, was so ambitious and so sprawling that it contained a murder mystery. The murder mystery didn't so much as suddenly appear as simply explode across the other delicate plot lines. Alan filmed the mystery sequences, but when it came to editing it all together, he was dismayed to find that it didn't gel. Nobody cared about the murder plot that appeared unannounced and that felt contrived and tacked on. So instead, editor Ralph Rosenblum went about meticulously restructuring the film and it was through those sessions that a newer, stronger, sadder, more romantic and more profound movie emerged. In a career spanning almost five decades, Woody Allen has given us at least six masterpieces. Annie Hall, Manhattan, Zelig, The Purple Rose of Cairo, Hannah and Her Sisters, Crimes and Misdemeanors, and at least twice as many classics. So if someone ever utters the cliched complaint that there has been a fall off in the quality of Woody Allen's films, remind them that not even Shakespeare was Shakespeare every day. <laughs>